Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. Um, and we're in our uh, Thanksgiving week of um, specials of talking to people from across the pond. Um, uh, and we've got a doozy for you today. James, uh, introduce our guest, please. We have Michelle Paradis, who is a internationally renowned human rights lawyer. Um, so in good company with Philippe Sands, a, a friend of the pod, as, as we all know. Um, uh, he also teaches uh, law at Columbia Law School. Uh, and he is also the author of The Last Mission to Tokyo, which is uh, a fantastic book. And it's all about it's not well, it's partly about the Doolittle Raid, which is one of the most iconic and famous air raids of the war uh, launched in um, April 1942 um, against against the Japanese. Um, but it's about so much more than that, because what happened to those poor guys once they'd taken off from their aircraft carrier, um, done the mission, then where do they go? Well, some of them ended up in China, some of them ended up being captured by the Japanese. Um, and let's say you didn't really want to be a prisoner of the Japanese in World War Two. So um, that is what the book is about. And, and it just goes so much further than the raid itself. Um, and it, and it and it sort of creeps into the post-war and and kind of recriminations and you know um, shenanigans and hunting down the perpetrators and all sorts of stuff. So anyway, you're very welcome, Michelle, and thank you for. Yeah, thank us. you so much for having me on. Uh, very good company with Philippe Sands. I'm sure, I hope he is not insulted by that good comparison. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, Philippe can soak up anything. I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> you, it, it. Even if he were, we'd never know. Um, uh, so, Michelle, how did you how did you get into this into this story of of the, the Doolittle raid men and what happened to them um, after the raid? Really, because because as James says, the raid the raid so often in the in in uh, the telling of the history of the Second World War is a landmark moment. It's America, you know, returning fire and so on and all that sort of thing, and it tends to sort of stick out as a, a singular event. And then, and then you get on with the story of the rest of the war. So, what attracted you to the to the story in the first place? So, it actually was a really random um, coincidence. I was working um, in the Department of Defense at the end of the Bush administration uh, on the Guantanamo issues, and uh, this is two thousand and seven. And there was an ongoing debate that you might remember as to whether or not waterboarding is torture, and that was this big legal debate we were all having. And we had heard about a rumor about a case. What we had heard was there was a case where the Americans had prosecuted the Japanese for waterboarding. Uh, and that obviously seemed very relevant to the questions we were evaluating. So we sent a Marine captain out to the National Archives uh, to pull the record from this case. Uh, and she comes back, you know, with this thing that I don't think had been seen in 70 years at that point. Um, and then on one sort of drizzly day, I just picked it up and started reading it. And it was the story. It was the story of the captured Doolittle Raiders their uh, you know, incarceration, their torture by the Japanese, including for waterboarding. But it was about so much more than that, too, um, as, as, you know, as we sort of get into in the book. It's about this war crimes trial um, that the United States conducts in Shanghai, China, of all places, in 1946, uh, to punish the Japanese who were, who were deemed most responsible for the torture and murder of the Doolittle Raiders. And so like, just, I, I read the whole thing in one day. It was this incredible, um, you know, reading this trial uh, in 2007, I felt like I was looking through the sands of time um, at many of the same problems, questions, um, and and moral quandaries um, that I was confronting, um, you know, with Guantanamo issues were all being dealt with in the end of the 1940s. And I think the thing that probably stuck with me, why I ended up ultimately writing this book, was the 
sinking realization as I was reading more and more of it that, you know, we were the Japanese. <laughs> um, yeah. So we the are, are we, we the, the bad, bad guys? guys? Yeah. That, right? that are question. We the baddies? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and it was just like this stunning moment for me, um, which is why it stuck with me. And then a couple of years later, um, I decided to finally just write it all up in a book. Well, of course, you know, you 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 crossed a massive hurdle by actually finding that file in the first place at Nara, um, because it's um, as I'm sure you're aware, it's absolutely notorious for being impossible to find anything that you actually want. <laughs> as as, I, the, as uh, I learned in the course of writing this book, absolutely. because yeah, the ordering up process, <laughs> the ordering up process. I mean, it's a magnet for for those who haven't been there. It's it, you know, you go down some kind of big wide boulevard and you you turn off and everything looks well appointed and it looks like a fantastically kind of sort of modern library or something in this surrounded by trees and the kind of, you know, just out, just off the north, uh, north edge of Washington, DC. I think it's actually in Maryland, sort of near college park. And, you go in and it all looks sort of super slick and kind of you think, Oh God, I, I, I'm with experts here. These, this is just going to be such smooth riding. And then you get upstairs and you get to the ordering process. <laughs> you think, yeah. How does this work? And it doesn't matter how many times I've been yeah. there. Every single time I go there, I have to start from scratch because I just cannot remember. It's so, it's so sort of complicated and labyrinthine. And, yeah, and, and there's no index torturous. to anything, right? They have these like these finding aids, which are layered, right? So you look up one finding aid and that says, go to this finding aid and you might find something relevant there. And then you go to that one and then it gives you a couple numbers and they're like, there are 900 boxes on this topic. And you can order, I think, yes. you can order 20 record, at group, a time. record group 216. Record group 216. Yes, exactly. <laughs> shelf, st and what's it? And then it's stacked. Yeah, yeah, and then it's something shelf. else. Uh, yeah, stacked. Oh, my God. It, it's just. Does it does it feel deliberate? Does it feel like a bureaucratic attempt to obfuscate and uh, and and hinder? <laughs> it, it, I don't know. It, it, it's always difficult, particularly in the American bureaucracy, to distinguish what is done through malevolence and what is just the consequence of like accreted <laughs> incompetence over time and yeah 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 <laughs> i think that applies to, to, that applies to most bu bureaucracies it does i mean to be fair once you're up and running and you've got your trolley of your you know whatever it is 14 folders and boxes you're away and and then it's incredibly user-friendly it's just getting them in yeah the first find, finding what you're looking for is is so so difficult and actually one of the one of the biggest finds, so you mentioned how lucky it was that I found um, this record, and it was just by chance. Um, when I finally ended up, you know, committing to doing the book and was spending you know, day after day in the National Archives, um, one of the big things that, that puzzled me, which I end up really being able to unpack in the book, which is amazing, is why the Japanese go through all the trouble they go through with the dual writer. So for the, you know, for people who haven't read the book yet or listening, you know, one of the one of the sort of remarkable things is that, you know, the Japanese capture eight of the Doolittle Raiders in China, torture them, you know, in ways that are completely unspeakable. Waterboarding is the least of it in some ways. Um, and uh, end up bringing them to Tokyo. And there's this big decision as to what to be done with them, right? You have the hardliners in the government saying, let's just execute them as spectacularly as possible, right? We've done it before, we can do it again. And it will deter Americans from trying to do something like this again. Um, but then you also have on the, the sort of dovish side, um, people like Foreign Minister Togo, who are part of the liberal establishment in Japan. And they're like, no, we agreed to comply with the Geneva Conventions. We're not going to be a rogue state here. And, and that was a remarkable thing for me to find. It's just this controversy, right? It, 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 it betrayed a lot of the stereotypes that I certainly had growing up as an American thinking about Imperial Japan. Um, but in researching that and trying to figure out why it is that ultimately how, what they settle on doing, the compromise they reach, is to put the Doolittle Raiders before a show trial. Um, and, and, the, and the idea is that if we put them in front of a show trial, um, we can execute them, but it will look legal. Um, so it'll, it'll have the smack of due right, process. Yeah, right, smack, right? Maybe, maybe more of a yeah. smidge. Um, but... Um, yeah. And so like, but I was trying to unpack how that decision got made. I could see that this controversy was going on, but I could never link that up with actually the decision, how they decided to use a war crimes trial as a way of squaring the circle. And I remember, you know, spending one, you know, dreary day in the National Archives, going through boxes and boxes of SCAP, old, you know, Supreme Commander for the Allies of the Pacific uh, boxes. And I came upon one box that just said, misc interrogation records 
right? Which is, and it was a giant box and it was like packed to the gills and papers were like all like pushing out. And I just sort of committed to just going, okay, I'm just going to leave through this thing. And then I found it, right? I actually found an interrogation with a lawyer from the Japanese war ministry who basically recounts what happens. And the story he tells is, you know, they came to us and they said, is it legal? Is there a way that we can execute the Doolittle Raiders? Um, and the answer the lawyers came back with was, no, obviously not, right? Like, that's completely illegal. That's murder. Um, and then they came back to them and said, no, 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 no. I don't think you understand. We have to find yeah, yeah, yeah. a way to execute. Find yeah. us a way. And, and that's like, he basically recounts how the, just the sort of grunt bureaucratic level uh, lawyers in the war ministry sat down like with a big pot of coffee or tea, I guess, because it's Japan and basically said, okay, how can we do this? And ultimately hit upon this idea of concocting a war crimes trial in which to prosecute the Doolittle Raiders. So it was like, so that's a sort of a classic Nara story, right? You're, you're in the, you're elbow deep in all of these old musty documents. And then, you know, you just find this thing that kind of just clinches um, the story that you're, you're trying to unpack. Why do you think this this story um, had to be discovered, though, Michelle? What, what, because clearly, it's 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 part of an iconic part of American military history, um, uh, and also, and you know, in, in your field as a as a as a lawyer, you'd kind of think, well, people would people would have a red flag on this one. As hey, look at the time the Japanese tried to do this, and look at the look at the stitch up they tried to create. How, how did it vanish? Yeah, it's, it's an amazing, I, I, I have the same question to some extent. Um, the best answers I can come up with are one that, you know, so, so ultimately just, you know, cutting a little bit to the chase of the book, and, and this isn't giving too much away. Um, the Americans in, in Shanghai, when we were conducting our own post-war war crimes trials, you know, not just Nuremberg and Tokyo, but a lot of smaller ones that um, are actually far more fascinating, candidly. Um, the, getting justice for the murdered and tortured Doolittle Raiders ultimately comes down to the ingenuity of this, you know, not that young, like he's 40, um, American army captain uh, who's a lawyer who's stationed in Shanghai who ultimately decides the lawyers are responsible. Um, And what the Americans ultimately do is they put the Japanese lawyers and judges on trial as those most responsible for the torture and mistreatment of the Doolittle Raiders. and so you end up having this remarkable, and this is mostly of what the book is about, this remarkable trial of a trial after the war, where you have the Americans essentially putting the trial of the Doolittle Raiders on trial. And, um, and so like the one answer is the trial in some ways was some success historically, because all of the things that end up, you know, we end up prosecuting the Japanese for doing, end up becoming black letter prohibitions in the Geneva Conventions of 1949, including um, you know, most famously, the idea that you have to use what's called a regularly constituted court. Uh, you can't just summarily execute people or, or it's sort of you can, injustice is, is essentially a war crime um, under the Geneva Conventions. And so, you know, like most things that are successful, you end up forgetting why they why those things got put into the Geneva Conventions in the first place. Um, and so I think that's at least part of it. No one sort of bothered to look behind um, why, why these things end up getting put in the Geneva Conventions. I think another thing, though, and, and this kind of comes out in, in the course of the trial, is that the trial ends up being, um, ha- having a lot of unexpected twists and turns for the Americans. Like, certainly when I picked this story up, I was expecting a fairly straightforward morality tale about, um, you know, the evil Japanese doing evil things and the Americans, you know, bringing them to justice. And, and that's true. That's, that is what the story is about. Um, but how that actually ends up happening, what it means to bring someone to justice is that it ends up being a much more kind of morally ambiguous enterprise than you might expect. And, you know, most people obviously know about the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but, you know, the fire bombings of Japan were equally, if not far more destructive in terms of loss of human life. Um, and the whole trial in some respects becomes a, at least one element of the trial becomes a, a real moral reckoning by the United States with its campaign of bombing, right? What, what, what were we doing? Was what we did entirely legitimate, lawful, moral um, to indiscriminately bomb, you know, places like Japan and, you know, it's lesser extent, but significantly Germany as well. And, and so it's not the kind of clean Hollywood story that you, that, you know, you'd want to necessarily put up on the silver screen. And so I think, 
as the as a coda to the Doolittle raid, which does have, particularly in the United States, this this sort of privileged place in American folklore, right? It's an entirely heroic story. Um, it to have a sort of wrinkle to it that that you know either exposes or at least analyzes a much more ambiguous moral question. I think is just uncomfortable um, for people. Yeah. And so I think we, yeah. we should also sorry we should we should also probably just just explain. I mean. For those very, very few people listening who obviously don't know what the Doolittle Raid is, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so 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 the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in uh, in on the Day of Infamy in December 1941, uh, and immediately there's a desire to sort of you know show that we can strike back. So um, uh, Jimmy Doolittle, who is this legendary figure, aviator from the 1920s and 1930s, he's a he's an aviation engineer as well. I mean, he is quite a remarkable man in in, in his own right. Gets this squadron together of of um twin engine bombers puts them on hornet and it shouldn't really work because they're not really designed to operate off aircraft carriers gets them within spitting distance and off they go and 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 bomb tokyo don't they yeah yeah it's this really just like utterly improbable uh story all by itself and, and doolittle is this great i agree he's one of the unfortunately kind of not forgotten, right? People, some people know who he is, but he's not the household name that Patton or something would be in the United States. And that's too bad. because I. But he certainly was at the oh, time. at the time, he? absolutely. He was, the time. He, was, he was far more celebrated than someone like Patton. Um, uh, he just didn't have George C. Scott to, to play him in a movie. Uh, <laughs> although, although Jimmy Doolittle has gotten some pretty generous casting over the years, like Alec Baldwin. Um, I, Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, yes, that's right. He, yeah, yeah. Because actually, he was a he was he was a short ass with no hair. That's right. Yeah, you know, like Paul Giamatti would be a far more accurate um, sort of bit of casting. Well, Danny DeVito. Or Danny DeVito. Or something, right. No, but he is. He's this remarkable, um, you know, figure who he's like the first. He's the first American to ever fly across the country in a single day, um, which is now something we obviously take for granted. Like the idea that it would take a day to get to Los Angeles seems horrifying, um, but. But at the time, it's like a really remarkable thing, right? This vast country um, has been stitched together in a way that, you know, now Philadelphia is as close to Los Angeles as it is to New York in some ways. Um, and so he was this really iconic figure and he had this reputation for doing insane, impossible things. So his other, his other most famous stunt was um, he painted the, uh, he didn't paint, he actually used boards, but he blacked out the windshields of his airplane took off from an airfield, flew in a circle 14 miles overhead, and then landed again on his wheels without ever being able to see in front of him, right? So he's flying blind. And, um, but one of the things, the sort of like the, the secrets, the Jimmy Doolittle secret is that he just has this kind of, you know, pardon the show, but this kind of American ingenuity about him, right? He's a, um, you know, much like our sort of vaunted tech entrepreneurs and all the sort of like the Thomas Edisons that are sort of these folk heroes in the United States. You know, Jimmy Doolittle understood that once you're up in an airplane, up and down become really ambiguous categories. You need science, you need engineering to get you through that. And so he develops, you know, he gets a PhD from MIT. He develops instrumentation to basically fly based on math as opposed to this kind of gut, you know, Red Baron era flying that he had come out of. Um, and so when he gets asked to do, you know, is it impossible to attack Japan by taking off of an aircraft carrier? You know, not unlike the Japanese lawyers um, in Japan, the first answer is no. And it's just like, like physics doesn't allow that. Um, but he engineers around the problem. And as you said, he, he basically gets this squadron of 16 twin engine bombers, basically turns them into flying gas cans um, and just engineers around physics uh, so that he basically makes the math add up so that they can get as close as possible to Japan, get these sort of bulbous glass nose bombers off an aircraft carrier um, and then do this bombing raid, which is completely successful, right? It does everything it sets out to do. Um, not a single plane is shot down over Japan. All the planes end up getting out of Japanese airspace safely and all but two of the crews end up escaping to safety, right? And including Jimmy Doolittle. Yeah. So the yeah. plan is to, is, to, is to land back in China. And obviously not all of China is occupied by the Japanese. So the key is to kind of get into the kind of Chang's kind of nationalist bit um, where they're going to be safe um, uh, and then bug off back home. Um, but two crews don't. Yeah, two crews don't because so one of the one of the sort of revelations of my I don't know how big I don't know if anyone's ever seen this before, but I couldn't find it. Um, but there's always been the, the Chiang Kai-shek was supposed to set up an airstrip inside of China. 
Um, and there had been this kind of urban legend that Jimmy Doolittle put forward that the plane that was supposed to send the homing beacon crashed on the way, and that's why the airstrip never materialized. Um, but I found all of these records, including White House records, where Chang was basically like, no, I'm not going to do this, like a day before the raid. And you have <laughs> George Marshall, like, cabling him, you know, the modern, what would now just be an email, um, cabling him saying, no, 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 the planes are en route. You better do this. And there's no evidence that Chiang Kai-shek ever essentially agreed to support this mission. Um, after the fact, he was like, yay, look, we did. Um, but, you know, at the time, he... he re- How extraordinary. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what ended up happening was all these guys end up crashing. Um, they either, you know, ditched their planes into the ocean. Um, the most famous uh, sort of non-Jimmy Doolittle tale from the Doolittle raid is Ted Lawson's 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. Um, and his plane basically just crashes headlong into the into the beach um, off the off the off the coast of China. Um, the only plane that lands on its wheels is uh, lands in Soviet uh, um, outside of Vladivostok, and they immediately get captured and interned because right because the Soviets are neutral with Japan, and the Soviets want nothing to do with the Doolittle raid. Like Operation Barbarossa is well underway at this point; they cannot have a two front war. Um, but all the rest just crash, right? They crash, they jump out, they run out of gas. Um, and, but miraculously, they all make it into various, you know, they, they find friendly Chinese to help them get to uh, neutral territory and ultimately on their way back, uh, back home, except for two. And that's sort of the story ultimately of this book. Uh, one of the plane crashes off the East China Sea um, and another, um, they essentially jump out over Nanchang and are caught almost immediately, right? That's basically heavily occupied territory at that point. Gosh. And so begins a, a, a rather terrible journey for those who are captured. The sheer, di- the sheer di- di- daring of it is, um, it, uh, it's because after all, the, 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 you know, later in the war, you have the US uh, 8th Air Force flying missions from North Africa. You know, they go across um, uh, and you get flights into the Soviet Union. You've got all that going on. But this really is flying completely into, uh, again, it's, he's flying blind again, isn't he, Doolittle, essentially? It's literally a wing and a prayer, the whole thing. It's incredible. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, one of the, and I think, you know, you no one said this at the time, and, and even after the fact, no one really would admit to it. But, you know, I, you have to think no one, everyone suspected they might not come back from this, right? This is a, you know, I mean, they are literally just flying into the abyss, as you said. And, and I think the one, the only, the best piece of evidence I, I've ever been able to find that people kind of understood that this was a low probability affair um, was that the fact that they end up having to take off early. Aircraft carrier moving and moving, moving, or trying to get as close as possible to, to uh, Japan just because they don't have enough gas to get, you know, over Japan and then onto China. And um, they get spotted by the Japanese in the middle of the night. Uh, there's a little picket boat that, that they pick up. And the um, the uh, the the admiral Admiral uh, Halsey, who's in charge of the task force, basically says, "Take off now, or you're not going." Um, and Doolittle's like, "Look, we got 12 more hours. We need to get 12 more hours closer." And Halsey's like, "Nope, you're going now." Um, and and that just kind of shows you, right? There's this sense of like, "Yeah, these guys may or may not make it, but there's no way we're risking an aircraft carrier for this thing." Um, and so you know, yeah, they they just flew into the abyss, and mirac- miraculously, only three of them die. In the attack, so 16 planes, five crews each, only three die, and it's all in plane crashes. Um, all of them, two die off the East China Sea, and one guy jumps out uh, and lands on some rocks and ends up uh, dying as a consequence of, you know, falling hard. Um, but all the rest And then of there's the ones that are obviously that are, yeah. uh, that are eventually killed by the Japanese. Sure. Well, then there's the eight who get captured. But the fact that they even made it that far is still kind of just, you know, just as a, a feat of it's luck. extraordinary. And, yeah, yeah. And bravery is, is totally extraordinary. So then, what happens to those guys? That that they're, they're captured by the Japanese, and and they're do the do the local commanders think? What are they not surely tempted to simply execute them then and there? How is, how does that not happen? Because because you you know you tales of you've tales of um you know in Germany downed air crews have a, often have a very rough time, terror flieger and all that sort of thing. What what restrains the the local Japanese commanders from just simply shooting these guys or stringing them up? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question, and I I think two things end up mattering a lot. One is um, one of the crews falls into the uh, uh, to the territory of General Shigeru Suwada, who is one of the major characters that I end up writing about in the book. He's one of the people tried um, in this trial in 1946, and he's an interesting character that that again kind of. 
like exposed for me far more nuance to the Japanese Imperial Army than I think I certainly ever expected, right? You know, and it's again, it's not to um, to minimize any all the atrocities he was responsible for too, but there was just this kind of sense of professionalism, right? These aren't these aren't you know bare knuckled savages. These are sort of organized military men who've been in you know in, in Sawada's case in the Japanese army since the turn of the century. And so he had fought the war against the Russians. They had been on the side of essentially the allies during World War One, right? There's a, there's, you know, not unlike the Wehrmacht, you know, not, not to draw too many, uh, like, inappropriate comparisons, but, you know, the Wehrmacht had a much different approach to the treatment of prisoners than the SS did. Um, and, and that's a distinction you see in Japan um, as well, even though we tend not to, you know, I certainly never thought about it that way. Um, and so... I think that was part of it. He immediately reported, you know, I mean, he, he captured them. He immediately reported their capture uh, to the Imperial High Command and, and they were like, send them to Tokyo. Um, so I think that's part of it. It's just, there was this sort of basic professionalism um, at, by certain officers, not all, right? And that's sort of one of the fascinating things about the Japanese army is there's wild inconsistency. A certain, a, an incredible amount of discretion was, was pushed down the chain of command so that even in something like the Bataan Death March, you know, if you're in one group, you might be getting plenty of water, rest, food, whatever. If you're in the next one back, you're getting bayoneted, right? It's and it's just whoever the lieutenant. So suggests. it's really that different. That's it's completely random. It's completely random. There's just so, so much discretion that just ends up getting pushed down the chain of command. Um, that there can be that there's a lot of luck, frankly, involved in how you get treated by the Japanese. Um, but I think the other thing, and and this is you know again something that. It's difficult to appreciate now, but certainly at the time, you know, this was a, the noodle raid was a major shock to Japan, right? This is the the first time in their recorded history that the main island of Japan is attacked um, from abroad, and so there's like there's a just a premium on these guys. There's a desire to get them to figure out how they did that, right? There's intelligence value. Um, there's a desire for revenge to make them examples. And so Tokyo, you know, wanted those people and they wanted them brought to Tokyo. They didn't, you know, I, I think there would have been a certain amount of, um, you know, displeasure if they were executed before they could be properly quote unquote interrogated, um, by the Kempei Tai in Tokyo to find out everything they knew, how the Americans essentially pulled this thing off. Are we at risk of further raids like this that are going to destabilize our country and our politics? Um, and so I think that was, it was just a, a, you know, not a humanitarian impulse. It was just a, they were more valuable, uh, alive, certainly actually, um, than they would be sort of just summarily executed. We're going to take a short break now. We're talking to Michel Paradis. Welcome back. We're talking to Michel Paradis about last mission to Tokyo. I mean, I've got to say, I think, I think, you know, one of the things I, I've sort of discovered from from kind of reading about and researching this subject matter of, of the Second World War is that you always come to it with a kind of preconceived idea, which is broadly from what you've seen on a kind of bad documentary or in Hollywood or whatever. Yeah. And almost invariably, it's it's more complicated. It's more nuanced. There's kind of lots of stuff where you go, well, I had no idea about that. Yeah. And 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 it's amazing how it just you start delving in, you start kind of sort of rolling your sleeves up and getting getting kind of um, uh, stuck into the primary resource primary sources and stuff, and 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 you do realise there are these just these incredible layers, and it starts getting you think about this stuff in just a completely different way. Well, it's, especially especially when you're talking about these to- seemingly totalitarian states, where you'd yeah. think there'd be u- uniform approaches to stuff, and especially in the you know the, the Japan's a militarist dictatorship, militarist fascist fascist nationalist dictatorship. You, the army is the tail wagging the dog. Mm. You you you'd ex- you know, and all my all my I simply assume well that there's some guy itching to get his. Samurai sword out, chop their heads off, and because that's the that's the you know the, the received the view yeah. we've yeah. that's the image that's the thing we've had delivered to us all this time. But it's obviously it's got to be more subtle than that. Yeah, it is, um, and, it's, and it's also like just the recognition. And I agree with you. Like the more you dig, you know, I grew up you know as an American with all of the sort of the same kind of World War Two dramas and you know, John Wayne movies and later Michael Bay movies, and there is this you know you know we end up forgetting, and I think this is true generally. 
we forget that other people have politics too and that they're they're human beings they have <laughs> power struggles they have their own sort of cultural biases and interests and sense of morality every you know I mean, it's a cliche but it's true everyone's the hero of their own story no one thinks of themselves as a villain and i kind of find that fascinating right i kind of find the the story the you know the fairy tale history is kind of boring and tedious not just because they're inaccurate yeah, but, well, I agree with you. but because it's just not it doesn't actually tell you what's going on in a way you don't it, you yeah. can't really understand you'll learn, learn yeah. no, you'll learn nothing the only thing you'll learn from it is the kind of stories people like to tell about themselves that, yeah. that, that so so if you want to learn about human nature you can study history for that for the things people like to <laughs> think of themselves and say about themselves but you're not going to learn about what what on earth happened and how people um handled those situations or behaved in those situations you're not even beginning but i would actually disagree with you i think if you want to learn about human nature like dig into history like why why are people making these decisions and oftentimes you know i mean it's the answers you get are much less sort of like again fairy tale sort of black, black and white but they're also a lot more disturbing in some ways right because and this is, I think, what initially drew me to this story or what made it so sticky um, after I read it was, you know, the Japanese were acting, you know, with the same kind of, you know, so not, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't want to be too facile with the analogy, but I do think there is something to be said for the analogy between the Doolittle Raid from the perspective of the Japanese, right, how they understood it in their own political culture, um, and 9-11 in the United States, right, you have this history of being completely invulnerable. Um, you know, the world and all of the foreign adventures of your army are something that's over there. Um, you know, you haven't been attacked really in your recorded history. The last time was the Brits when they burned down our capital uh, or the White House. Um, and, and We could do that again if you need us to. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me get back to you in a couple of months and we'll see how it's going. Uh, but, you, you know, so the... So for me, what was really sort of creepy, frankly, about, you know, the more I dug into this was that the Japanese were making a lot of the same kinds of mistakes that I could see the United States making um, in the war on terrorism, the embrace of torture, the embrace of show trials, the sort of the attitude that nothing we do is wrong because we're on the side of rightness. So there's, we, we can't be immoral in essence because we're, on, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Um, and all of those things that was, you know, that I felt were leading my country astray, um, I could see the Japanese doing for the same reasons, right? With the same rationales and rationalizations, more importantly, um, to try and justify what they were doing so that they were the ones in their own minds who were, kind of, who were wearing the white hat. Um, and that to me is fascinating. That makes history fascinating because I think it does tell us mm. more about our or, you know, our modern, it, it at least makes us more aware of the decisions we're making today, right? It's the old joke yeah, is that history, sure. history rhymes. And, and when you can see that, I think it does give you just a more clear eyed view of the, you know, of the fallacies and the, and, and the mistakes. And certainly how decision making processes work. You know, the, yeah. if you're basic, if your set of assumptions are, are X, Y, Z, the way people make d- decisions and it doesn't matter where they're from or what culture they're from. People make decisions in similar ways. It's what they're based on. Uh, that 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 that's the only difference there, really, isn't it? It, it uh, that's an abs- that's an absolutely fascinating point, Michelle. That is, um, anyone asks why are, why are you interested in the Second World War? Well, why wouldn't you be? That that's the <laughs> there it is. There it is, right yeah, there. There um, it is. So. So they're so they they're, they're they're taken to Tokyo and interrogated and and you said waterboarding but but I mean is it is is it a real chamber of horrors what happens to them? Yeah, so it's actually interestingly enough more in China than in Tokyo. It, you know the yeah. So the Kempeitai gets a hold of them uh, in Shanghai and in Nanking, um, which is where the you know the major outposts of the Japanese army at that time were. Um, and so waterboarding is is obviously sort of one of the most marquee horrors that they're subjected to. Um, they're um, hung from their hands. They're put into stress positions. Uh, at one point, one of the guys I write about, um, Chase Nielsen, who's one of the Doolittle Raiders, he's um, you know he's being interrogated, and they they pin him to the ground and they put a pole. They make him kneel on the ground and they put a, a broom handle behind his knees, and then they push him back to the ground and then stomp on his legs to essentially leverage his knee joints apart um, to make him talk. They, um, they take these thin sort of pencil-y sticks and they put them between the webs of his fingers, uh, down into his nerves. And he, and he talks about the, the pain of that just being blinding, right? It's this, this kind of pain you can't ignore that you didn't even know you could hurt in that way. Um, 
And then, you know, then things like sleep deprivation, things like, um, you know, just beating, right? Traditional, good old fashioned beating um, or, or locking people into, into small confined you know, spaces. Um, but the thing, and this was kind of a revelation too, um, the thing that they all, all the, so four of the Doolittle Raiders survived this um, miraculously. Um, and the thing that all of them talk about as having been the worst torture they experienced was solitary confinement. Um, that they were essentially locked into their cells for you know, 23, 23 and a half hours a day um, with really no human interaction, just sort of left to, to be in their cells, right? To be deprived essentially of the most basic sort of, you know, interactions you might have with another human being. Um, that that was the hardest thing. That that was like not the waterboard, not the stress positions, not even the sleep deprivation, but just the the indefinite just being left in solitary confinement. It drove them crazy. One in, in a couple of cases, it really did drive them crazy. Um, and and that was remarkable too, because we don't, you know, we tend to think of these, you know, what are, what are sometimes called touchless tortures as being more benign or humane or, um, uh, you know, acceptable. Um, but, you know, solitary confinement, I, I, you know, I, I don't know enough about the law in the, in the United Kingdom, but it's used pretty routinely in the United States now. Um, and to see that be identified by uh, the Doolittle Raiders as the worst thing they endured, um, you know, not the starvation, not the lack of medical care, not the waterboard, but being held in solitary confinement was really, um, you know, kind of a revelation to me, at least. In, in, That's extraordinary. Mm. And, and, uh, did, the, did they talk? I mean, because after all, you know, the efficacy of torture was a big part of the debate that um, uh, it, it, that was going on in, in the 2000s, wasn't it? You, you know, you, you, you get, you, I, think, I think George W. Bush said, well, if it, if it, if it works... It's worth doing. Did they talk? Uh, because after all, men do talk. They do. They do say. They do say. Well, our plane was rigged like a fuel tanker. Like they don't do ra- name, rank, and number because what's the point? And uh, uh, it, it might save your skin. And 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 once they've talked, do the Japanese persist with the torture? Because after all, you know, torture's an end in itself, really, isn't it? Rather than a means to an end. So so, what's the complexion around that? Yeah. So so. Basically, everyone did talk to some degree. Um, and, but what the interesting thing about torture and, and, and even the doodle readers being made to talk is that everyone talks, but they don't necessarily give you good information. And that means the torture doesn't stop, right? The, the big sort of myth around torture is that, well, if you torture someone, they'll tell you the truth. And the real problem around that is that you don't know if they're telling you the truth. That's why you're torturing them, right? You don't know the information <laughs> yeah. you're supposed to get. Yeah. And so when they yeah. start saying things, unless you have a way of immediately verifying what they're saying, you have no idea whether or not you should stop torturing them or not because they could be lying. They could. So I think there are two reasons why we really torture. One is sometimes we just like beating the shit out of people, right? There's a sadistic part of my, I don't know if, I, I'm sorry, I don't know if I could swear on that. No, no you're, okay. you're totally welcome. <laughs> but, but there's a sadistic impulse in human nature, particularly when dealing with people who are understood to be our enemies that make us just want to beat the tar out of them. Um, and so, you know, and we can rationalize it as we're, oh, we're trying to prevent another attack. But really we're just trying to, you know, just beat, we just want to beat someone up. We want to, we want to exact our rage on someone. Um, but the other, and this is something that the Japanese Kempei Tai, right? I, I mentioned it before, but they're basically like the secret police in Japan. They're military police who are the sort of the intelligence clandestine service. Um, that they knew well is that, you know, you can't necessarily get information out of someone, um, but you can get compliance out of someone if you torture them. And so if all you really need is to hear something from the horse's mouth, if you know what you need them to say, you can torture someone. If you do it long enough, they'll eventually tell you what you want to hear. And in the case of the Doolittle Raiders, the, the thing that they wanted to hear was the Doolittle Raiders confessing to committing atrocities against the Japanese. Um, and, you know, as lo- they, and so as long as you keep beating them, eventually they'll say, yes, we gunned down children in school. And, and that's what they did, right? They have these confessions um, that the Japanese extracted out of the Doolittle Raiders that were, that were turned up in the course of this trial in 1946. And um, they're almost comical in how ridiculous they are, right? It's this, it's Japanese propaganda ostensibly coming out of the mouths of, you know, these American uh, airmen. And, 
you know, it's clear they're just being tortured. And they're like, and you beat, the, and, you know, and you gunned down that child in school because you could see him playing baseball, didn't you? And he's like, yes, I did. I thought, damn the Japs, and I want to give these kids a, you know, right. And so, like, that, you can get that from torture, right? If you just need to hear someone say something um, because, you know, you, you need it for, like, but you, legal reasons you could, or something. You could, yeah. you could bribe them to do that, though, couldn't you? I mean, this is the thing. <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's not the only method of coercion uh, 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 available to you. So, so I think you, you end up coming back to, and at the core of that, it's submission because you want to beat the shit out of someone because you want to punish them because you want to control them. Yeah. That it, 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 it's, it's, that's what it's really about, isn't it? I, I and, think so. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and but, Japanese outrage. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, is, it, it is striking that this is the first ever... Um, you know, Japan, Japan has been inviolate until the until the 19th century, effectively, and and it, it facing out. And after all, that was deeply controversial within Japanese society, facing out yeah. uh, to the rest of the world. So, so look where that's led us to being bombed in our. You know, even though we're winning this war, these wars. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And and the to- and so here's why it mattered for the Japanese too is that by getting these sort of ridiculous coerced confessions, they could support them at the trial, right? Remember that the whole crux of this thing is they need to have this trial because they want to be able to execute them. And in order to execute them, in order to have a trial of any kind, you need evidence of some kind. Um, And so what's the evidence? Well, it's these statements that very conveniently, you know, have them admitting to atrocities that we can execute them for. Um, And so it's very instrumental. Do you have Imperial Navy guys going, please, could you not kill them. I want to pick their brains about the aircraft and how they got here and which way they flew. They did that. Um, have you got that? Yeah, yeah, they, they've, they've done that as they well. They did that as well, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, it's, it's difficult to know. Like, the records were surprising. A lot of those records ended up getting burned, but um, some of the dual raiders actually admitted to talking. Um, and actually talking rather freely, even without torture. Um, you know, once, that, that's sort of another sort of, um, I don't know, if it's sort of myth of torture is that, that people will only talk if they're tortured. Um, but you'd be surprised when people get captured, they start chatting. Um, you know, people like they're, they're unnerved. They're kind of off their balance. They're, they don't know what's going to happen. They're just sort of. Well, and they're out there and they're, it's not important anymore. They're out of right. it. After all, uh, uh, you know, um, you've been in a plane crash. You're probably thinking uh, um, life's, life's terrible and frightening anyway. I, what can I do to make it more comfortable for yeah. myself? Actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, or, and again, just simple human things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But Michelle, what, but Michelle, I mean, you know what? We kind of started with you saying that this actually made you question a lot of the things that the Americans are doing in Guantanamo Bay and, you know, to ISIS prisoners and, and, and so on. I mean, making you a little bit kind of introspective about America and how America handles prisoners. I mean, you know, how, you know, what, what, what are the Americans trying to get out of these guys in ISIS? Presumably they just want, want details of networks and all the rest of it, but they've got the same problems that, that the Japanese have is how do they know whether they're telling the truth? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, I mean, the, the, the CIA's torture program, sort of most infamously, um, you know, they, we did studies on it. The Senate even released, a, uh, our Senate did a pretty big report on this in 2014, got nothing of value out of torturing these guys. Um, and there's a, a, a somewhat famous FBI agent named Ali Soufan, who, um, who was in, initially did a lot of the interviews. Uh, before the CIA started torturing people, and he got all the, anything out of the anything out of the CIA prisoners basically went to Ali Soufan, and it came before uh, they were tortured, and that includes who planned 9/11, right? That that was probably one of the biggest breakthroughs of the immediate sort of interrogation program, and that happened before the CIA got uh, control over a guy named Abu Zubaydah, um, and it's because Abu Zubaydah just had got chatty, right? Like that's the thing is people. People like talking. Um, it's the rare, it's the rare bird who's really able to clam up. Um, and when you just start talking to somebody, eventually they, they start talking. And and there's actually a famous um, example of this. The there was a, a German interrogator uh, who I, I, whose name I've now forgotten, unfortunately. Uh, but he he was the one of the prime interrogators at a prisoner of war camp uh, where a lot of Allied prisoners were held. And after the war, they would debrief all these guys who had been interrogated by this guy. And like, yeah, I didn't tell him anything. You know, we, he would just have us in for tea or we'd chat and, you know, nothing. I didn't give him anything of military value. And yet he had basically put together the entire, like, the, the entire map of the Allied <laughs> armies and their position and their organization and their <laughs> capabilities just by sort of, again, having, having a cup of tea with the guy. And, you know, you, you just kind of get these little drips and drabs. That's, that's how you get intelligence, really. 
Um, you know, torture, I think, is mainly just, again, this, it has two purposes. You want to kick some ass and you want to make people incriminate themselves in ways that are po politically convenient to you. Yeah. But, but, but the other thing is, is bombing and strategic bombing. Yeah. And I mean, you, you know, I know you kind of know a little bit, you know, knew about, about World War Two beforehand and you've seen your movies and kind of read your book, I'm sure, and all the rest of it. But, but having done this research, I mean, what's your, what's your take on st the strategic air campaign now? And I mean, and I guess particularly with, with, concerning um japan tax on japan and yeah b-29s the fire bombing of tokyo and all the rest of it and indeed the the atomic bomb yeah it's you know i mean it's it, it's pretty um it, it's hard to live with i'll be honest with you like it like um, I, I tried to be and, and anyone who reads this book i hope you know will take away that you know i have very maybe it's being a lawyer but i have a very strong view that you should not that you should withhold as much judgment as possible, particularly from historical figures, because the main objective should be understanding why they were doing what they did. A, that's just, as we said before, just kind of more interesting. Um, but I also think, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not helpful in a sense to, to write polemical history, just in the same way it's not really helpful to write fairy tale history. I think they're basically just two sides of, a, of an equally uninformative coin. Um, but it's, you know, the, the firebombing of Japan, um, even more than the atomic bombings, I would say, is, you know, just remarkable for the scale of destruction and for a certain level of just indifference to the the human costs that were that were being exacted. And I don't think you can confront that and think it was a good thing. That said, can you think it was an understandable or necessary thing? Can you understand the logic of it at the time um, when you know, a land invasion of Japan is expected to cost potentially a million lives um, all by itself. That, those are the projections, and they're not unrealistic projections. And there's a theory that, that I think probably was not borne out, in fact, but it was not unreasonable at the time, that strategic bombing could uh, have the effect of bringing wars to an end faster. Um, and that was the theory. And Curtis LeMay, who is a sort of sort of uniquely psychopathic figure in history, but genuinely believed, look, if we bomb them ruthlessly, they'll surrender more quickly. We'll save not only more American lives in the course of doing that, we'll save more Japanese lives because a, a ground invasion, like what, what are our comparators for that? Okinawa, right? Everyone dies, right? Do we, or, or the Battle of Manila, everyone died, right? Every Japanese soldier died 50,000 yeah. civilians and, and Peleliu and Saipan right. and, and so on and so forth right the Iwajima. exactly like these these you know these land the, these land invasions that the estimates of a million dying were not pie in the sky this was not worst case scenario thinking these were basically mathematical estimates based on the experience and so is it rational is it understandable that LeMay could say look if we can end this with the air with air power we should try and do that because even though it will cost hundreds of thousands of lives, that's less than millions of lives. Well, which leads you directly to the A-bomb decision, because because that's a that's a bang for your buck strategic bombing. If you if you if you if you've understood how normalized strategic right. bombing is in their mindset, the A-bomb of well of course you're gonna use it because you'd not got to send a squadron of bombers, you can send individual planes. Of course you'd do it. Because and if you look at the indifference to the to the uh, the death toll in Tokyo, that leads you directly to Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima. Right, it's, with, without it's just a matter of efficiency, right? There's the atomic yes, exactly. The atomic bombing, like we, we tend to look back on the atomic bombings. I think justifiably because it's this exotic weapon um, that you know, I mean ultimately and you know quite quickly in the in the forties and then throughout the Cold War developed a destructive potential that is, you know, species ending. So like we look back at that as an incredibly important moment. But again, from the vantage point of 1945, of July of 1945, it's just in a more efficient bomb. Um, like there's the, you know, the radiological effects are basically poorly understood. Um, and there is this sense of, well, if we can do it with one, one bomb, what's, what's the difference than if we do it with a thousand tons of bombs, like we dropped in Tokyo. Um, and um, just, the difference is yeah. the difference is is six hundred bombers, right? Exactly. It's just the it's the amount of gasoline. It's, it's the one, yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. that we need to it do, is, and that's one crew of thirteen or whatever, you know, as opposed to six hundred and fifty times thirteen. And and it's a, so it's, it's a controversial thing to say, I have no doubt, but fewer people died in the both atomic bombings than in the firebombing of Tokyo alone. 
And that's, I mean, that's a remarkable thing when you think about it, um, that you could have over 100,000, you know, civilians die in, in the firebombing of Tokyo, and then about the same number in, in the two atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that we remember today. And so, so he, I mean, I, I don't, I, again, I, I, I hate cliches, but I use them all the time because uh, they're right. But, you know, war is hell and we have to, we, we shouldn't sugarcoat it. And, that, and that's why I don't like either political or fairy tale history, because you can't look at the bombing of Tokyo as anything other than a tragedy uh, of, of a vast human scale. Um, but you can also understand how it, I, I think it's important to understand how it happened um, and to whether it was effective in all these things without, with this, at least as, you know, as restrained of a moral judgment as possible um, with the, because we have the benefit of hindsight that we, they didn't have then. Yeah. Yes, well, it's fascinating absolutely. talking to you, Michelle, about all this. And, and and it's always lovely getting completely different takes because, you know, historians tend to talk to historians. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, one of the things I kind of always try and sort of keep in mind when I'm 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 doing stuff is is that actually it's also important to talk to economists and it's also important to talk to, you know, engineers and it's uh, and a whole host of people, not just sort of people in corduroy jackets and wainscoted rooms smoking pipes. You know, it's, it's you know, uh, and, and so getting getting the perspective of someone who's who's you know, coming to this kind of comparatively fresh, I suppose, as as a kind of primarily a lawyer, and just sort of getting getting the bit between your teeth on a particular subject of the Second World War and its aftermath. I think that that you're 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 coming at it with that kind of totally blank page, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that you're not when, when you've already been studying it for twenty years beforehand. But yeah. also with the urgency of the relevant relevance to now, to the yeah. to the moment the moment you discovered that in. I mean, it, absolutely. It, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, yes. After all, it, it, the, you could the past illuminates the present in that respect, um, doesn't it, Charles? Uh, yeah. Gosh. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Um, uh, we will. Um, well, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll try and get you back on another time. We could talk even more about this if you're, <laughs> I, if you're I, game. I'm delighted. This has been fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah. La- but but yeah. But last mission to Tokyo. Yeah. Is the book, and. Um, yeah, I've recommended it to anyone. Well, thank you so. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you, thank you. This has been again an amazing conversation. Thank you guys so much. Uh, excellent. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.